Our scripture lesson today um, is very quick. It is Romans 12, 18. It is Paul's admonition to the early church in Rome. Let's share in God's good word together. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. It is my great joy and honor to have uh, six members of our community uh, with us tonight uh, to share in the message, Hold Us Together. If you have seen even uh, a cursory glance at the news over this summer, uh, you have seen how fractured and broken uh, particularly uh, America has been uh, in ways that we haven't seen uh, perhaps since the civil rights movement. Uh, It's been a very scary time, a fractured time, a hard time. Uh, And the church, I believe, is the hope of the world. It is the church that leads the way forward. It is the church uh, that had taken those first steps uh, 2,000 years ago to show us how to live. And I believe it will be the church again if we will make it so, believe it so, live into it so. Uh, So I want to introduce these folks, have them introduce themselves, uh, and we will get started uh, with a conversation that we need to have uh, in this church uh, and perhaps all the churches as we learn how to live together again. Hi, everybody. I'm Mike Thompson. Um, I've been in the criminal justice profession since the summer of 1984. I'm currently the commissioner of the Oklahoma Department of Public Safety, and I'm very excited and very appreciative of Pastor Mark for having this discussion tonight. Hi, my name is Jason Rigsby, and I am an Edmund police officer, and I've been there for nine years. Uh, Currently work nights, and I appreciate Pastor Mark for inviting me. Uh, my name's Katie Smith. Uh, my husband, Josh, is an Edmond police officer um, and has been for 11 years. And we've been members here of, uh, at Acts 2 for 11 years also. And Josh is right there. So those of you all know Josh, thanks for being here tonight. My name's Carter Jennings. I'm an assistant district attorney here in Oklahoma County. I've uh, been there for about seven years, uh, assigned to the uh, gang prosecution unit, done felony domestic violence prosecution, and uh, been a member here for about three and a half years. Happy to be here tonight. And we all love your photo. That's great. Good evening. Uh, my name is Keith Bethel. I, uh, origi- I'm originally from the Bahamas, um, but currently serve in the United Methodist Church as a youth pastor. Um, been a member here for since 2011, and I'm so glad to be here tonight with all of you and these wonderful people up on the stage. My name is J.P. Hill, and I'm an assistant public defender here in Oklahoma County. I've done criminal defense work for about four years now. I work a felony docket, and I'm excited to be part of this conversation tonight as well. All right, so uh, we worked through this on Wednesday night, and so uh, the questions that I have agreed to ask them, so we're not throwing many curveballs up here tonight, uh, is first of all, in this conversation, uh, from your perspective, what do we need to understand uh, as a people, as a church, as a culture? Yeah, uh, one of the most important things I think that we need to understand, one, I know a lot of you guys don't have a lot of interaction with the criminal justice system necessarily, and so from my perspective, one thing we need to understand is one, that there are problems with it and that there is an inherent, from my perspective, there is an inherent racism in the system. With that being said, I sit across and I negotiate with people like Carter all day long and I, I don't have any stories where I feel like when I'm sitting across from somebody they're being overtly racist to me, right? The issue is flaws in the system and I think things like Dallas happen when we forget that it's a systematic problem and we try and pin that on one particular group of people. So I'd like to, us to keep that in mind as we have the conversation that it's the system as a whole. It's not one particular group of people. And at some level, we're all culpable in it and we're all responsible for making it better. 
Well, and on Wednesday, you said something really interesting to me that you, you never felt like one of your clients got a worse deal um, as you were negotiating because of their race, but yet the statistics bear out that there's something going on. Absolutely. There's a, there was a report that came out about a month and a half ago, and basically Oklahoma incarcerates more African-American males than any other state in the country. So the, the facts are there that there is a problem, but like I said, I don't see an inherent racism. I think it's something buried deeper in the system. Yeah, I think along with JB's comments about it being a systemic problem, I think we have to also recognize and acknowledge that that comes from a history and a context of the system being used in very discriminatory practices and discriminatory ways. Um, and that's important to remember because it, it takes a while for systems to flush themselves of particular bad habits, bad practices, and so it's only been about 50 years ago since uh, the civil rights era, and so we have to recognize that that's not a very long time when we put that in perspective. Um, it's a relatively short time, um, but again, like JP said, remembering that it's not a particular person uh, or individual, but we're talking about systems that need to be repaired. Um, just as an example, the Department of Justice released a report of 163 pages covering constitutional infringements by the Baltimore Police Department. And again, it's not, the report doesn't single out one particular person, but what it says is there's been widespread um, bad practices in the system itself that need to be fixed and that we need to address. So I think that's important for us to kind of also keep in contact along with that. Um, I come at it from a little bit different perspective um, than these guys do. Like I said, I work at the DA's office. I've been there for seven years, and I work alongside 40 assistant district attorneys and work for a man, David Prater, who have nothing but the best interests um, of this community at heart and don't treat anybody differently based on their race, color, creed, origin, um, ethnicity, anything of that matter. Um, and I think we need to remember a couple of things here. Um, here in, you know, Pastor Mark reminds us frequently and we need to realize just how blessed we are to live in, in the part of, of the United States we do in the part of Oklahoma County that we do. Up here in Deer Creek and Edmond at large, um, just a, a few minutes away in parts of Oklahoma City, live drastically different lives, higher levels of poverty, higher levels of incarceration, lower levels of education. People come from a different background. Um, than we do and, and live different lifestyles than we do and, and are blessed to live up here in Edmond. Um, the other thing I would say is that we're very lucky here in Oklahoma County and Oklahoma City um, to not have the problems that we do see in other large metropolitan areas. From time to time you'll see um, officer-involved shootings in the news um, and you'll see other times that there are stories of police officers doing not what they should do sometimes in, in our office. Um, when, when things like that happen, we, I work for a man and work for David Prater and work with other assistant DAs who aren't afraid to hold sometimes officers accountable in the very, very small fraction of times when things do go wrong. And so I think when you have situations like Daniel Holtzclaw or the officer in Dell City um, who, who shot an un, unarmed kid, um, and those people are prosecuted and held accountable, the, the community should have faith and can have faith that the justice system does work, and I'm proud to be a part of that here in Oklahoma County. And, and Carter, say a word about this, because, um, you know, I'll, I'll come home from work, and at, at, it's not all that exciting around here. You know, I read my Bible, I talk to some of you people, and then I go home, uh, you know, my, my two miles to my house, and, and I turn on the news, and I see something from Baltimore, or I see something at Ferguson, or, or whatever that is, um, and there's this temptation in me to say, well, why didn't the suspect just do this? Or why didn't the police just do that? As if it was pretty simple from the 
five seconds I saw on the CBS Evening News, and I think, well, gosh, that, I mean, it seems really simple from a distance. Sure. So as, as you and, and JP in particular get into the complexity of it, what, help us understand that from sort of our living rooms to the realities of how complex that can really be. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think Jason might be a better person to even speak to this even. Um, but what you see on TV are just snippets and encounters. And I can tell you every officer involved shooting in Oklahoma County is screened by the elected district attorney in Oklahoma County to make sure that look at everything, not just some cell phone video that somebody takes on the street. Talk to the other officers involved. Talk to the other witnesses to get a whole picture. Um, you don't just see the little snippet that you do on the news. There is a, a weeks and months long um, oftentimes investigation into anything involved like that. And um, it is not an easy process. It's much, much more complex than people see in the news. And I can tell you that the people involved in that in our county care about the outcome and care about the process to make sure the right result is reached. Sure. Thanks. Okay. Um, I think for me, I obviously have a little bit different perspective than um, anybody up here. I'm obviously not on the streets. Um, I'm not in the courtroom. Uh, I just see what happens with my husband when he comes home from work and just kind of what we feel as a family when he does leave for work. So uh, he works the night shift, which is 9 p.m. to 7 a.m., which is really probably the more violent, if you want to use that word, um, shift, um, a little more dangerous. Uh, and he's worked that shift for ever, um, as long as I can remember. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're just kind of used to it. Uh, and, you know, five years ago, it probably wasn't anything. It's always in the back of your mind that, yes, my husband's a police officer. Yes, there could be something could happen to him and he could not be around anymore. Today, that's in the forefront of my brain. Every time he leaves for work, um, you know, it's just it's scary. And. He tries to, you know, he obviously doesn't wear it on his sleeve, and I know he knows what he's doing. And, uh, but to have people judge your husband just because of the fact that he's a police officer and not just a human being is really difficult. Um, you know, he gets called every name in the book. Um, and if you know my husband, you know that he's an extremely kind-hearted person and really doesn't probably 99% of the time deserve that. Um, <laughs> just at home. Maybe just at home. <laughs> right. Maybe. <sure. laughs> um, but, you know, every morning when I hear the garage door open and I know he's home and he's safe, it's a relief for me. And then I can get through the day. And then it happens again that night. Um, and, you know, obviously, that's just, that's just our life. And that's what we deal with. But for just somebody that lives a normal life, I guess I shouldn't say normal, but a life whose their husband's not a police officer. Um, you know, it's just not something you think about. But to send your husband out to almost what I consider a war zone now is, um, it's really stressful. And my kids are old enough that they see it now. And, you know, I have that, I know in my head what I'm going to do when I get the phone call or the knock on the door that something's happened, and I know what I'm going to say to my kids. Um, and that's just not a world that I want to live in. Um, I, I want to, you know, figuring out what we can do to heal this. Um, and I guess it starts with conversations like this. Yep. And, yeah. and thank you so much for, for showing us the family perspective because... Um, 
I just have the tiniest, tiniest little blip of a glimpse because every time there's an officer-involved shooting in Oklahoma City or Edmond, uh, I immediately think of the officers in our church family. Uh, I think of uh, Josh because I know him the best, the longest. I think of your kids because when you guys came here, they were little, little, little biddies, mm-hmm. and I've watched them grow. So every time that, you know, there's, there's an officer-involved shooting, and, and Edmond in particular, you know, I'm picking up my phone and I'm looking, is it, is it Josh, is it Jason? Uh, if it's Highway Patrol, I'm looking for other folks in our church that are a mm-hmm. part of that system or Oklahoma City PD. Um, and I know that kind of what happens in me, and so I can't really imagine how much that must be amplified for you and the kids. Yeah. So I just want you to know we're praying for you and rooting for you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I just really want people to understand that 99.9% or more of the officers out there are just average men and women that are out there really doing great work in y'all's community. Um, the men and women I work with have an extreme passion for serving their community, and it's like that in most police agencies. Um, another thing I wanted to go over, like Carter was saying, is a lot of these incidents that you guys see on TV or the internet, you're seeing just a tiny puzzle piece of a huge puzzle. And I really implore people to see and hear all the facts before you make a judgment of what you just saw, a tiny tidbit on your TV. And uh, understand that we're not these big monsters, we're just normal guys and girls out there working in your community. Well, and I I think that's really important what you're saying, because before I was a pastor, I was in television. Um, And, you know, I'd be assigned uh, a story, a hostage situation, something like Mm -hmm. that. And that might be a 12-hour event. Right. Um, and I'm there all day, and then my producer calls me and says, uh, uh, you know, this just broke, you know, what can you give me in 20 seconds uh, before the commercial break? Right. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, you know, what do you have? Can you show us the ending? Right. And so oftentimes, you'll have a day event, a two-day event, a 30-day event, a 12-hour event, and we, and we are trying to process or make sense of the last 15 seconds of a 15-hour event. That's right. Which is really hard to do. I, mean, I would say impossible to do. Right. You just can't do it. And unfortunately, a lot of what you're seeing right now, these snippets of video, is violent and it, with the police involved. And unfortunately, <clears throat> there is violence in our line of work sometimes. And usually, offenders will escalate situations that could have easily been ended peacefully. And unfortunately, that's part of this job. Sure. Yep. Thanks. Hey everybody. Uh, I'm going to talk fast because I've got a lot to say and I don't want to take up anybody's time. <laughs> um, what I want folks to understand is I can say it because I'm not sitting here in uniform, but we ask our police to work in a very violent, uh, very dangerous, very volatile wor- world. And my wife was the same as yours. She worried. I haven't been out of uniform for a number of years, but I know my wife worried about me a lot. Uh, And what I want the public to know, what I want the congregation to know, is sometimes you'll hear stories about these folks that have gone out and used horrible judgment. And you say, where in the world did you get that guy? What I want you folks to know and understand is most police departments, and I've been a part of the Highway Patrol since January of 1990, it's difficult, difficult, difficult to be a state trooper or a deputy or a police officer. It's not as if we're just hiring people walking out of Lowe's in the parking lot. And we go through months of a hiring process 
On the Highway Patrol, um, you'll go, literally, you have to fill out a 40-page application. We'll have investigators that'll go all the way back to your junior high teacher and say, hey, tell me what kind of kid Mike Thompson was. And then we'll do um, uh, psychological evaluations, and we'll do physical testing. We'll look at your credit report. Um, before they'll come and talk to me as the commissioner and the chief, uh, we ask them to take a lie detector test. So they've gone through a battery of things uh, to have the privilege to at least try to be a, a trooper or a police officer. And we still have some people that slip through the crack. Um, it just happens. I, I sit across, I've hired every trooper since, uh, anyone that's come on since uh, 2011, they've sat three feet away from me and made their pitch to me because if I'm gonna give that person that authority, I want him to look me in the face and give me confidence that he can go out and do a good job. And we had this kid about three years ago, and I won't single him out, but he was Superboy. He is a high school athlete and did good in school, FFA, college graduate, perfect, passed everything up until that point. And I had already offered him a job, and then we found his secret Facebook page. And the truth of the matter is, he was a homophobic, uh, racist, uh, borderline alcoholic. I asked him about his drinking habits because I need you to not be a heavy drinker because we may need to call you. He told me my body basically is my temple. And then we get a, his hidden Facebook page that says, three, three o'clock in the morning, man, I've been drunk for two days, I gotta stop doing this. That was eight days before he sat across the table from me and told me, told me that. And so when we called him, followed up with him, he just resigned on the spot in the process. Uh, but not to demonize him, but just to tell you folks that when you wonder how a person gets to that position of authority, it's a hard, long uh, process, and we put a lot of effort into it to make sure we have the right person doing that. Uh, Mike invited me to his office a few weeks ago, and, and I went and I sat in that chair about three feet away from Mike, <laughs> and I looked up at Mike. And uh, that, that would be a very difficult interview, I can tell you, uh, for sure. So thank you for what all, all of you do. And, and so that's a bit, a bit of beginning of what we need to, to understand um, because it's, it's quite complex from lots of different perspectives, lots of different people affected. And so uh, just as your pastor, um, I know we're not to kind of the action steps, but, but since we're there, um, you, know, you know, we just need to act like we have some sense on social media. We need to be aware of, of what we say, uh, and, and, and we have to ask ourselves, is it loving to, to everyone? Is it faithful? Is it true? And, and, and in my line of work, it used to be, is it provably true? Um, and so, uh, because you're, you're going to have a family of a police officer out there. You're, you're going to have somebody whose family's incarcerated out there. You're going to have people in the field out there. You're going to have people who are caught up in, in this really difficult work and conversation. And so, you know, th those of us on the sidelines, my, you know, I'll, I'll say kind of over here where I'm not in the fight in the same way, it's important what we say. Our, our words have uh, meaning uh, and it affects people. And so, I, I just to, if nothing else tonight, um, that we just just agree to be thoughtful um, in these things and not just sort of throw stuff out there uh, every time we see something that we, we think we understand in the first five seconds. Um, so the second question I ask them is this. Uh, if that's what we need to understand uh, from all these different perspectives, what do we have in common? What, what do we share? How can we begin to move forward by the things we have in common? Um, I, I think the thing that we have in common really is... Uh, 
we are all uh, less than perfect. Uh, we are all flawed. Uh, and we all have biases. And some may be from the way that we were raised, or some may be the ways that we grew up or what our parents taught us. And sometimes, in order if we're going to move forward as a society, we got to work harder to overcome our bias against other people. And if we aren't willing to do that, we're not going to make any progress at all. And life is all about time. And then Pastor Mark shared a story that is on his blog. And if you haven't read it, it's a great story about the 10-year-old kid at the theater and how that kid acted with white people, basically. And it just made me think about when I was, I'm 53 now, but when I was seven or eight, I was at uh, shopping with my grandmother. And back then, I had a little plastic soldier with a parachute. And you threw it up in there and you went and caught it. And that's what was entertainment for an eight-year-old back then. And I'd thrown it up in the air, and I was trying to catch it. The wind caught it, and I run right into this white lady, an older white lady. Keep in mind, I'm eight, so older might be 40 years old. And I was just stunned. I didn't really think much about it. I'm seven or eight years old, but my grandmother was just horrified. And my grandmother just came and caught me with the cane and profusely apologized to this white lady that I accidentally had bumped into. And she assured her that she was going to take care of me when she got home, and she did. My grandmother was a hard lady. And the lesson that I took from that as a seven-year-old, be careful what you do around white people. Yeah. yeah. It's funny now, not funny then. Right. Uh, and yeah. that was a bias that I had to overcome as I went forward in life because if I went through life being afraid of white people, I wouldn't hardly have a chance to have any of the success or the, the marriage or the relationships that I have today. So it's just something I think we have to work hard at overcoming. I think that we, all of us, have goodness in our heart, and I see that <clears throat> that's what we all most have in common here, and I think that we just need more of that in society right now, for sure. I think um, love probably is what comes to mind. Um, I obviously love my husband um, just as much as the mother of a 17-year-old African-American loves her son. Um, I. I obviously am pro-police because that's just what our family is, um, but I'm also pro-human race. I, I believe, and I know my husband and I both wholeheartedly believe that Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins. He didn't just die for white people or black people or Asians. Um, so I think we just need a whole lot more love uh, in this world and, and understanding of how other people feel. This question makes me think of the way we open our, our services here at Acts 2 every week. We're all sinners and we're all saints at the same time. God loves us on Sunday morning we're in church. God loves us Friday night when we're out or Saturday night doing whatever it is we're doing. God loves us at our best. God loves us at our worst. Um, it's important to remember no matter who you run across, and I need to remember this, and I, and I try to remind myself daily in my job, that no matter who I'm dealing with, no matter what they've done, God loves them just the same as they love me, as he loves me and wants us and wants the best for that person the same way he wants the best for me. And as, and as followers of Christ and children of God, we need to remember that and treat each other the same way to the best we can. Yeah, I think along with that and also with what Katie said, you know, we have to remember that people groups are not monoliths, that we're not 
one person doesn't, their actions doesn't represent the entire group of people. Um, so in the same way that, yes, we talk about having bad apples or, you know, police officers that may not be doing, you know, their job, that we have people like Jason that are doing their job really well um, and that those poor examples do not represent um, the whole group, and in the same manner, um, different racial groups, the examples that we may see played out on social media or TV, um, those don't speak and represent for the entire people group. And so I, I, I think that's how Christ would want us to see the world, is that you know we see everyone for their belovedness, um, and we see people groups for their belovedness, regardless of how um, we may perceive them or how the world may perceive, uh, perceive them. So, yeah. Um, working at the Public Defender's Office, I spend most of my time working with people who are criminals, people who have committed crimes. And so I, I think approaching that, this question from that perspective, I want you all to understand that most of the people I deal with want the same things that you all want, right? They want to have a good job. They want to take care of their family. They want to have a home. And so I just think it's important that we remember that and see that as a commonality that we have with those people that they aren't that different from us in most perspectives. Uh, it's a lot of times just a lack of resources and lack of education. And when we get to these sorts of really thorny issues, these things that are really tough, uh, it, it, there, we have this temptation to say, well, wouldn't it be great if we just went back to Jesus' time? Wouldn't it be great if we just lived like the Bible? Uh, and the answer is no. It was a lot harder then, a lot harder then, uh, 15 years after the resurrection, for example. Uh, after Jesus was raised, uh, there were five groups, and they had to figure out what Christianity meant. How, how do you do this? How do you live out this new faith together? Uh, first of all, there were Jews, and they, for all of history, thought of themselves as the chosen people, the people of God. And they were told that they weren't supposed to intermarry, uh, have anybody over the house, not eat with, do nothing with anyone who wasn't a, a Jew. Uh, so the second group of people were non-Jews, the known as Gentiles. Uh, and particularly, uh, the occupying force of the time was Rome. Uh, the greatest power the world had ever seen. The sun never set on the empire of Rome, uh, it was said, because it was so vast. And these, the Romans basically came in, took people's land, took their money, overtaxed them. Uh, and now Jesus was saying, um, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the people you're supposed to get along with. And then on top of that, they still had slavery. Uh, there were slaves. Uh, and, and slaves could come to church alongside their masters alongside Gentiles, alongside the Jews. And then not only were there slaves, there were freedmen. And, and so there were people who were former slaves who had either worked their way or bought their way or somehow gotten out of slavery, and they're sitting next to the slaves who were still slaves, next to the people who weren't Jews, next to the people who were Jews and had been Jews all their life. And then finally, in ways that we really struggled to understand uh, in our culture, there were the women who had no rights at all, um, and in some ways sort of equal to slaves. And so all of these people had never been together before, and, and it wasn't just one or two groups, it was lots of groups who had to figure out what does it mean to follow the Messiah. And so in the book of Acts chapter 10, um, Peter, the founder of the church, starts to, to work on this. And, and he goes, um, and he has this vision that he's supposed to talk to Cornelius the centurion. Now, the reason we highlight that is because the centurion was somebody who had at least 100 uh, soldiers underneath him. Uh, somebody that he oversaw. And, and so uh, you might consider Rome a, a terrorist organization. At least that's how Jews would have seen them at the time. Uh, you could not think of somebody who was worse to you than, than a Roman if you were a Jew. And it says he was a righteous and God-fearing man, uh, this Cornelius was. And he was respected by all the Jewish people, which is saying something uh, given their history. And a holy angel told Cornelius to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. 
Uh, and so that's the beginning of the story. And then later, if, if we'll flash forward to verses 27 and 28, while talking with him, Peter, the founder of the church, he goes inside and he found a large gathering of people, all these Gentiles, people he's not supposed to have anything to do with at all. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law, against our custom, against our practice, against everything we've ever been taught to associate with you or, or to visit a Gentile. And so these are his first words with a group of people that he's never been with. And he says, but God has shown me that I should not call any man or anyone impure or unclean. That, that in, in his Jewish mind, these people were still lesser than, they're different, they were outside. And God said, no, no, every person on the planet is my child. And so don't discriminate, don't be prejudiced, don't be racist against anyone, not against anyone on the whole planet. And so the, the thing that's tricky about this is uh, Andy Stanley did a sermon around this about a month or so ago. And he said this, I thought he was exactly right. He said, prejudice and racism are almost impossible to see in the mirror because it's hidden in our hearts. You know, so I, I go and I look in the mirror and, I, you know, hey, I'm, you know, I'm not racist. I'm a good guy. I've, I've got people of color friends. But, you know, it's a dangerous prayer. It's a hard prayer for me to say, okay, Lord, Show me any trace of prejudice or racism in me. Show it to me. Let me see it for real so that it can be rooted out and thrown away forever. I want you to take this out of me. That's a hard prayer to pray, to say, I, I, don't, I don't want any of that in me because I know that's not in you. That's not who you are. And so I, I want to lift up the early church that they had to work really hard uh, in lots of different ways to come together and, and to pray that prayer of God, you know, this isn't how I've been raised. This isn't what I've been taught. But you tell me that every person on the planet that I lock eyes with is your child. Help me learn how to live into that and how we're going to do that together. Now, so that leads us to the, the last question. What are we going to do? What can we do? Yeah, um, I just want to echo what Mr. Thompson said, that we, I mean, that we all have these implied biases. And so I think step one is, you know, recognizing those. And maybe that's prayer. Maybe that's asking a friend to look at our lives. I don't know. I don't know what the best way for you to do that is, but I think it's, it's trying to understand what those biases are and then you know, maybe making the effort to have some friends that look different than us. I think it might be as simple as that even. Yeah, I think this is something that Katie alluded to earlier. Um, have, those, have those conversations. Start having those conversations at your dinner table, in your small group, in your Sunday school class, wherever you meet people, have those conversations. Um, this stuff is not easy to talk about, and we're obviously not going to solve it up here for you today. But um, it reminds me of a Dr. King quote where he says, true peace is not the absence of tension, but it's the um, presence of justice. Um, but notice how he started that quote was, it starts with the tension. And I think if we live into that tension, we live into that uncomfortability and figure it out how to talk about it as we go, um, I think that's where we'll start to see the healing begin. But it, it really does start with us not being afraid to have the conversation with people, um, particularly that are different with us or maybe that hold a different viewpoint than us, which I thought was a great idea why Mark brought so many different voices up here today. 
We have incredible opportunities for mission right here in Oklahoma County. Up in Edmond, we are we are so blessed with, with what we have. And just like I mentioned earlier, miles away in Oak, parts of Oklahoma City, you can almost draw a straight line from a zip code that a child is born into, has a, an, an impoverished school, and, and put that person in the county jail and maybe ultimately prison. Um, there's people in our church that go spend time and work in these communities that are different than ours that try to make difference in young people's lives. And to the extent you have time or can do that, I encourage you all to to get out and do that okay so I'm gonna give you all an action step and it's pretty simple just thank a police officer it's really to them the tensions are so high right now um, just to get a simple thank you for what you do means the world to them um, write a letter write them a note um, anything just if you see an officer getting a coke in 7-eleven just say hey thank you for what you do thank you for keeping us safe and you know we're praying for you it just, it really means a lot to them and their families. Um, Pastor Mark brought up a good thing on Wednesday when we were talking, and when I thought about this, what can we do? Um, I think that we as a society are lacking respect for one another, and I don't mean that, I mean that as either your race or your profession or your religion or whatnot, and the older I get, it seems, when I was young, your grandparents taught you respect for them, the elders, and your teachers, and people of authority. And it seems the older I get, there, the less there is. I mean, I saw it in the schools, I mean, everywhere. And I think we need more of that, for sure. And another thing I think that we could do is for the parents to talk to their kids, um, especially about incidents that are happening in the world, because especially teens, like, um, you'd be surprised what they're learning on social media and how much of that stuff is totally false. And they believe it, because that's what their friends are showing them. So it would be important for parents to talk to them to set them straight. I like talking at the dinner table. I'm amazed all the time of what they talk about. Um, and the last thing, I implore people to talk to the police officers that work in your community and ask them questions. We, we don't mind questions. And if you're interested, you can even go do a ride-along with them and see what they do on a daily basis. Um, that's all I got. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> for me, um, in relation to... Um, the police and the race relations we're having right now, um, I would just ask you to try to make a more uh, sincere effort to de-escalate something if you kind of get the feel that it's escalating. If you have a bad experience with someone in the post office, you're going to go home and grumble about it and tell your wife about it. If you have a bad experience at Homeland, same thing, but if you have a bad experience with a law enforcement officer and you allow that thing to escalate to a point to where uh, it's a physical confrontation. It's not going to end well for anyone. Um, so try the best you can. The thing, even before all of this happened, and advice when I'm not in the advice business, but what I would tell my friends and family, don't be arguing with a police officer on the side of the road. You are never going to win that <laughs> argument. Right. You might think you will, but you won't. Uh, there's a time and a place. There's a season for everything. Uh, go do what you're directed to do. Go to court if you need to and try to make that as less confrontational as you, as you can uh, so both of you will have a better chance of going home. Absolutely, absolutely. So I want to give us some hope. Um, only five chapters later in the book of Acts, um, this is how it plays out. The apostles and the elders, they, they move from the coast and they go into Jerusalem. 
And they're going to consider this question of how do we live together. And after a lot of discussion, Peter, the founder of the church, he gets up and he addresses them. He says, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles also might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. What we had just seen in chapter 10. And God who knows the heart. You see, God sees all of our hearts. He showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to all of us, to them and to us, just as he did to us. And God did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God? I mean, it couldn't be clearer, friends, on this issue. By putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. And you might say, well, what what does that mean? It means any time that you find yourself judging somebody else uh, for what you think is acting a fool, uh, just remember that somebody's already thought that about you sometime in your life. right? I mean, that's, that's common to all humanity. And so Peter says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. That alone, just as they are. They are saved by God's grace. We are saved by God's grace. And so if they're saved by God's grace, we're saved by God's grace, then they have God as their father. We have God as our father. That makes them their, our brother or sister. And those of you who are parents, you know that the maddest you've ever been in your life is when your kids fight. There's nothing that breaks your heart worse than when your children are not kind to one another. You just can't understand it. And so this is our, our first step. And you might say, well, I mean, really, come on. I mean, we're a little church up here in Edmond. What can we do? Uh, Andy Stanley said it like this. He says, we know the church can make a difference in this because the church did make a difference. And, and that's, the, that's the church we're named after, Acts 2, uh, this, these first Christians. We know the church can because we know the church did. Will you say that with me? We know the church can because we know the church did. And so uh, I invite us. Uh, to hear again uh, the prophetic words of the prophet Amos. He says, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And so I want to at least leave that with us. Uh, We're going to come down. Uh, We're invite you to stand and and grab hands so that we're all connected together. Um, And I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we will close uh, with the Lord's Prayer. So if you all come on down, and we'll just grab a hand with somebody by you. Uh, we know this may be your first time in church, um, and if this is awkward for you, we're sorry, um, but it's important that we're finally connected. Let us pray. Lord God, we ask now that you would bless our fellowship, that you would bless the world, and that you would do something new, that you would heal our hearts, that you would root out any form of racism that's within us, any sort of prejudice, any sort of hurt. Uh, We pray for our police officers and all who serve uh, in your name for the public good. We pray for good government. Uh, We pray for families who uh, have faced injustice uh, in things that are supposed to bring your justice to the world. And we pray for each of our hearts that you would show us who we truly are and let us have great faith that you are who you truly are to save us again and to show grace to all your children wherever we may be and whoever we may be and whatever we may have done. Make us new, Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his wonderful name who taught us to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.